I want to ask you, have you ever had this experience where you walk into a buffet and you get hit by a wave of sadness? This sadness from the realization that you won't even be able to try every single thing until you are more stuffed than a turkey that your mom makes for Thanksgiving, right? You, you realize that you're, no mortal, right, can sit down and enjoy everything here without, you know, dying, right? That's how I feel going into John chapter 6. Not only is it a very long chapter, it's a very rich chapter. Alas, there are times in life, right, when we have to just humble ourselves. We have to accept our own limitations. And uh, so, but I will be doing my best. But before we get into John 6, let's stand and let's pray. Lord Jesus, as we come to you right now, as we open up your word that you have left for us, your people, I pray Speak to our souls, God, through your word, God. May we see you. May we love you. May we enjoy you as a result of everything we hear from you today. Please help us. We thank you. We pray this all in your precious name. Amen. All right, you may be seated. So we are in John 6. And what's happening in John 6 is Jesus sees a large crowd of people coming to him. And he, what he does is he feeds them, right? The 5,000. And then we see that after he feeds the 5,000, he sends his disciples off across the Sea of Galilee. Think like it's like a Lake Tahoe. It's around that size, right? He sends them across to the other side. And they, you know, get caught in the storm. They, they think they're about to die. And Jesus comes walking on water to them. They bring him into the boat. They arrive to the shore. The next day, they are in a city called Capernaum. And they are in the synagogue, the religious gathering for the Jews. And the Jews, and Jesus starts to teach about him being the bread of life. So he just fed 5,000 with bread, and now he's teaching based on that miracle that he is the bread of life. And the Jews, they get very offended by this man's teaching, by Christ's teaching. So let's read together, starting with verse 43. And Jesus answered them, Do not grumble amongst yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. He's talking about himself. Verse 47, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. 
And we read that after that, many people stopped following Jesus because of these words that he said. So I want to just quickly look at this verse 51, which we just read. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Today we're participating in communion. And this bread is a sign of his broken body for us. But notice this. It is specifically through the sacrifice that Jesus performed on the cross that we receive life. Meaning, if there was no sacrifice, there would be no eternal life. Some people try to say that Jesus came to show us a good example. Some, he just came to love on us and that was enough to give us eternal life. And all we got to do is realize his example. No, he makes it very clear. He says, the life of the world the bread for the life of the world is my flesh, which was crucified on the cross, right? During sacrifices, it was the flesh of the animal that was offered in exchange for the sinner, right? If you accept Christ and his sacrifice on your behalf, if you accept his death that he died for you, bearing the wrath of God on the cross, you too can have eternal life. You too can be forgiven. You too can be saved. Christ has shielded us, shielded us from the wrath of God with his own flesh. So, now, going into this whole talk of Jesus being the bread of life and says, your fathers ate the bread. What is he talking about? What he's talking about is the events that happened in the book of Exodus. So if we rewind back God's story, when Israel was enslaved to Egypt, and then God miraculously, the ten signs against Egypt, performed it, performed judgment on Egypt, and, and they released Israel, and Israel left, crossed the Red Sea, the army was drowned in the sea, the, the Egyptian army, now they're in the wilderness, they're going to the promised land, but they've got a way to go. There's a, they estimate about 2 million people, at least 2 million people there, okay? Have you ever tried to feed a lot of people, like at a party, right? You know, 30 people, 40 people. They eat a lot of food. Now imagine 2 million people right? That's a lot of people that you need to feed. And so what happened is God sent manna, bread from heaven. We don't know exactly what it was, but it was some food that they could eat. And every day it would appear. And every day they would get this manna, they would eat it, and it would keep, it kept them alive for 40 years. Imagine, imagine how much that cost, right? How, how, much, how many calories they ate. Two million people for 40 years. God sustained them with this bread. And this bread, manna, that came from heaven in the Old Testament is just a shadow. Remember we talked about the Old Testament being full of shadows, but the substance belongs to who? Who does the substance belong to? Christ, right? The substance, the one who is casting the shadow is Jesus Christ. And one of those shadows in the Old Testament is the manna. And it's pointing to Jesus. It's symbolizing Jesus Christ. And it symbolizes him in many ways. First of all, the manna was a symbol of God's provision. You see, God sustained Israel in the desert with this manna. And through Christ, if you have believed in him, 
He is now sustaining you through this desert that we call the fallen world until we make it to the promised land, which is what? Heaven, right? God is sustaining us every single day through his own son. And we have faith that God will continue to faithfully every day provide us this bread from heaven, Jesus Christ, that Jesus will never abandon us, that when we wake up, that manna will be there to sustain me, no matter how long I'm in this wilderness. First of all, the manna is a symbol of God's provision. God will provide. Two, Jesus is pure and good. Exodus 16:31 when it describes the manna it says it was like coriander seed white and the taste of it like wafers made with honey it was white the bread was white meaning white is a symbol of purity right it's a symbol of no defects no problems it's not dirty it's clean right and it says that it was like made with honey, right? It was sweet. It was pleasant. It was enjoyable. Friend, have you tasted the purity and the sweetness of our Lord Jesus Christ? Have you actually tasted it? Life with Jesus is not bitter. Sin is bitter. Sin might be good on the tongue, but it is bitter in the stomach, I remember my high school teacher, this, this kind of big guy, these, you know, circly glasses, curly hair, and he was a really funny, really smart guy, but he was an atheist, and I remember he always said, you know, when I die, I want to go to hell, because that's where all the fun people are. He's deceived. He's deceived into thinking that sin is somehow better than Jesus Christ, than life with God. Psalm 34, verse 8 says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Friend, have you tasted, have you seen that Jesus is actually good? Not in theory, but experientially. Three, com- Jesus compared to the manna, we understand that Jesus is the better bread. The Jews that were in the wilderness, they ate that manna for 40 years. They had their bellies filled, but their hearts were not changed. They continued to grumble against God. They continued to rebel, and they died in the wilderness, not out of famine, but because God punished them for their hardened hearts. Jesus is greater than that. When someone partakes in Christ, when someone is part of Christ, he will live forever. He will live for. He will not die in that wilderness. He will successfully arrive to the promised land, unlike those sinful Israelites who were unchanged by the miraculous manna that God gave them. John 6, 49, right here, Jesus says, Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. Church, just listen to the words of Jesus. Jesus is not just a man. Imagine somebody speaking the way Jesus is speaking right here. He says, oh, that bread that God miraculously, I mean, the the miracle of the manna is amazing. That bread that God miraculously gave 
That was nothing. I'm the real bread that comes from heaven. Just think about the way Jesus spoke. No wonder people got offended. No wonder people stopped following him after that, right? If you don't have faith, Jesus is very offensive. You know, so often we get so preoccupied with asking God for this or for that, and I'm guilty of this, that we forget that God has already given us the greatest gift that there is to give. Church, do you realize that? Let that sink in. I know you know that, but this is just another reminder. You already have the greatest gift that you could ever receive, and that is the gift of eternal life through his beloved son. You already have it. If you've believed in him, all your needs here on earth, they can be provided for. But if you don't have the bread of life, Jesus Christ, all that provision in your life, all the comfort and wealth of this life will count for nothing on the last day. So let us feed on Christ. Let us remember him, believe in him, so we could survive in this wilderness and make it to the promised land for The manna in connection to Jesus is a symbol of God's grace to sinners. Exodus 16, verse 2. So this is the whole congregation. They left Egypt. Now they're in the wilderness. They're getting hungry. It says the whole congregation, the people of Israel, grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt. When we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out of this, out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. And look at what God says, verse 4. And then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you. Think about this, church. God miraculously, in, in, like, not. You know, Moses didn't just tell them, hey, God saved you. God did these signs. No, they seen all the signs. They seen the, the, the ten wonderful, terrifying signs through which he saved them from the most powerful nation at that time. They were slaves. They were nobody. They were just property whose sons were being killed, right? They were nothing. They were no one. God miraculously brings them out. God opens the sea. They walk through it. He drowns their enemies as they're pursuing them. God's doing all these wild miracles. What a privilege. (laughs) And then not even a few months pass as they're in the wilderness and they start grumbling against the same God that did all those miracles for them. That's like... That, just imagine you, you know, I don't know, taking someone homeless off the street, right? You give them a bank account. You give them a house. You give them a job. You give them a family. You give them everything, right? And then he starts complaining to you. I don't like my car. Ugh, I don't know. It's, just, it's, it's too slow. I wanted an electric car. Like, what are you talking about, right? Like, at that point, you just say, okay, give me everything I gave you and go back to your normal state, right? That's our reaction. And God, instead of wiping them out like he should have, he sends them the bread. 
He sends them the white and the pure manna. And he continues to do it every single day for 40 years. And he continues to sustain them. In the same way, church, Christ for us is that, that symbol of grace towards sinners. Do we not have the same ungrateful hearts that the Israelites had? God has saved us miraculously, and how often do we grumble about our circumstances, about how hard our life is, how bad things are, and how good life was back in the good old days? And God continues to give us his grace in the form of his son, Jesus Christ. All glory to God for his immeasurable grace that he gives to us. And lastly, the last parallel with manna and Jesus is that it was free. The Israelites, they never worked a day in their life for this manna. It would have cost them a fortune to have it in the wilderness, right? Not even talking, you know, in, in Egypt, they never planted, they never bought the seed, they never processed it, they never harvested they, they didn't do anything. They just had to come in, pick it up, and take it to their house. That's all they had to do. Boil it if you want it, right? They didn't have to do anything. It was completely and utterly free. Jesus, in John 6, the chapter 1, as he sees the crowd coming to them, in verse 5, Jesus said to Philip, Notice what Jesus says. He says, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? Do you think Jesus really was expecting Philip to buy the bread? Do you, do you think Jesus didn't know what he was about to do? Of course he knew. Then why did he ask him, where are we? And he specifically says, not, he doesn't say get bread. He says, buy bread. Why did he ask that? It was a test. Obviously, we know that, right? He was testing Philip. You know why he asked him that? Because Jesus knew that he was the bread. Jesus knew that he was the one who would provide himself to these people. And Jesus knew, and he wanted the disciples to understand that you could never afford what Jesus is about to give, not just to these people, but to all of humanity. It was Jesus' way of saying, you can never afford what I am about to give. My life that I'm going to lay down for you to have eternal life, you can never afford it. Just like you can't afford feeding 5,000 people in, the, in a desert, right? So you can't afford the eternal life that I'm going to give you for free. That's what it was. It was his way of showing the immeasurable worth of his own self. Church, the freedom that Christ gives is totally free. The gift is completely free. We can never earn it. We can never work hard enough. We can never have all the money that we need to be able to purchase our eternal lives. And Jesus makes that very clear. He makes that very clear. Now, going on, before we go on to the last part of this message, which will focus on bread, because that's kind of the main theme of this, of this chapter, I want to touch upon the topic of God's sovereignty. The word sovereignty is a long, big word that just means God being in control, right? It is not the main theme of this chapter, 
but it is an important theme, right? And it wouldn't be right to not mention anything about it. The way that Jesus spoke had a high view of God's sovereignty over all things, including salvation, okay? And look look at how he spoke. Let's just read a couple of verses out of John 6. Verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and he who comes to me I will never cast out. Verse 39, and this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Verse 40, and I will raise him up on the last day. Verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, pulls him, right? Verse 65, no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. I don't have time to completely unpack this whole topic as I have in previous messages. But here's what I want us to know. The Bible clearly, clearly teaches that both God is completely sovereign, 100%, not 99.9, but 100%, and that we still have a free will, and we are responsible for our decisions. And one does not minimize the other, or vice versa. The Bible clearly teaches this. Naturally, our human reaction, right, is to pick one and to minimize the other, right? Well, I like God's sovereignty, and there's therefore no human responsibility or free will, or vice versa. No, we can't get rid of free will. God's sovereignty somehow takes a lower priority, right? That's not, church, this is not how the Bible presents reality. It's not. Let me give you an example. Philippians 2.12. This is the, the, one of the best verses or passages where both God's sovereignty and our responsibility and free will are side by side with one another. Paul writing to the Philippians, he says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Stop right there. That sure looks like our responsibility, right? We got to work it out. We, we need to work it out. The command is given to me, and I need to work it out, and not just work it out casually. No, I need to do it with fear and with trembling. Why? Because a lot is on the line, right? A lot is at stake. And then verse 13 says, why should we do that? For it is God who works in you. He's working in you. Oh, how does he work in us? Both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Even the will that we have to to obey God, to live for God is from him. It's God's own working in us. Even the will, not even talking about the works. So here we see both. They're clearly here. God's sovereignty over all and our responsibility. Now, There are other things in the Bible, and you might be sitting there and thinking like, oh, I'm racking my brain. I don't understand. How can both of those be true? I don't know. That's the answer. We don't know. And there are other things in the Bible that also we cannot explain with human logic. It's true, church. It's true. If you are putting the Bible 
under human logic, that everything in the Bible has to be explainable by human logic, no longer is the Word of God your authority, it is your own human logic, right? And we need to be a little more humble, and we need to just look at the text and say, this is what it says, and I don't know how it comes together. Let me give you another example. Jesus. How much percent was he God, and how much percent was he man? Anyone want to shout it out? 50-50, right? 50, or maybe 51 God, 49 man, right? No, you guys said it. It's 100-100. Now, let me ask you this. Can this cup be 100% full of air and 100% full of water? It can't, right? It has to add up to 100%. So how, how is Jesus both 100% man and 100% God? Can someone ex actually explain it to me without restating that same statement? Well, I'll, I'll save you a lot of headache. For over 2,000 years, people have been talking about this, debating about this. We don't know. We don't know. We just accept it by faith that that's what the Word of God says, that he's 100% God. He's not like some sub-God who's under the Father. No, he's 100% exactly equal with the nature of the Father. And at the same time, he's 100% man. He's not just God in a human pod, right? That's not who Jesus is. No, he's 100% man who can 100% sympathize with our weaknesses. He's 100% in both. How those two come together, we don't know. But you know what? Most people don't lose sleep over that because it doesn't have any sort of moral dilemma for your life, Right? But the sovereignty, the free will one does, right? Like, do I have free will or do I not, right? That's why people lose sleep over that. There are other things in the Bible where we can't put them together, but that doesn't mean they're wrong or not true. The Bible doesn't try to explain the deity and the humanity of Christ according to human logic. The Bible just presents both facts as true, church, and we need to, we need to be okay with that. I heard a great analogy before about this topic. It says, you know, it's like two columns, right? A big column, the column of free will and the column of God's sovereignty. And they're going up, 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 up into the heavens. And then there's clouds. And we're not exactly sure how they connect. We can't see it from down here. We know from God's perspective, it will all make sense. It'll all make sense. But we're not sure how it connects. But we see both to be true in Scripture. I'm sure when we will be in heaven, we will ask Jesus, and he'll explain, and we'll say, ah, that makes total sense. And, and I want to be clear, church. By saying that the Bible teaches God's complete sovereignty and human free will, this is not a, like, compromised decision. Like, okay, here, we're going to make you happy, and we're going to make you happy. You guys are both right. Like, you know, just keep the peace. No, it's, it's, that's actually how the Bible talks, right? That God is fully sovereign and that we are still responsible for our decisions. Some people like to emphasize one at the expense of the other or vice versa, and that's not the fully most comprehensive biblical view. Some say that God is so sovereign that we are essentially robots, right? We're not. 
We're not robots. And the Bible does not teach that at all. I remember this one guy who, like, started studying God's sovereignty, and he was, like, super excited, right? And uh, it's called Cage Stage, for those of you that might know. But he, he was so excited, and this and that, and I asked him, okay, I'm like, all right, bro, let me ask you this. Pretend I'm an unbeliever. How would you evangelize to me? You believe in God's sovereignty. Complete sovereignty. Yes, yes, yes. Okay, evangelize to me if I'm an unbeliever. And he's just like, and and literally he couldn't answer that question. Because in his mind, he doesn't have the category of free will. And he literally, he's like, I don't know, how would you do it, right? Other people say that man is ultimately responsible. Man is ultimately decides what happens to this world. And if you take that logic all the way to its conclusion, God is powerless. In fact, if you actually follow it all the way, people that follow this all the way, they actually say God doesn't even know everything. It's called open theism. It's a heresy that says God doesn't even know the future because if God is all-knowing, that automatically makes him all-powerful. And that's a deeper topic, and we can talk about that later. As you think, I just, I want to, we're going to finish this topic here, but as you think about this topic, as you study it, I just want you to remember this, just a few things. First of all, it is not our job. Scripture never says that it is our job to, uh, you know, to determine who is elect and who is not. Are you elect, you know, like, you know, looking on the back of their head, do they got the little E on there, right? Are they elect? It's not even our job to know if we are elect, right? The Bible never says that, like, oh, make sure you're elect, right? The Bible is very simple when it comes to salvation. The Bible says we call all men to repent. If you repent and you believe, you are elect. It's that simple. We don't need to worry about, am I elect, am I not? If you repent, you will be saved. That's a fact. That's a biblical promise and a guarantee. The other thing I want you to remember as you, as you think through these topics, hold fast to the goodness of God. God is good, always, no matter what. He is always good. And even though we might not understand all of it, we might not be able to wrap our heads around it, God is infinitely good. And God will never and has never treated anyone unjustly. That's a promise. The Word of God states that very clearly. God has never and will never treat anyone unfairly. At the very last day, as everyone stands before God, no one will be able to say and come out and say, well, you did this and this and that to me, so that's unfair. No one. It says everyone's mouths will be stopped. There will be nothing that anyone will be able to say against God. You know why? Because he is infinitely good. He's not just fair. He is over-the-top good to all, both to those who were saved and to those who will perish. And also, just remember, our understanding, it's limited. Not everything's going to fit into boxes perfectly. I remember one of my earliest memories uh, from my life was when I was a little kid and I was growing up in this house over here at Bright. And I was, I'm sitting in the kitchen and my mom is sitting across from me uh, at the table and we're eating soup, right? And I look at her and she's eating soup with her right hand, but she's sitting across from me. So 
you know, just monkey see, monkey do, right? So I want to eat with the same hand that my mom is eating with. So I grab the spoon with my left, and I start eating it with my left hand because I think she's eating it with that same hand, right? She's like, no, 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 eat it with the other hand. I'm like, no, I want to eat it with the same hand you're eating it with. She's like, that is the hand. I'm like, no, I want to eat it. You know, I'm like arguing with her. So she sits over next to me, shoulder to shoulder, and she says, look, I'm eating with the same hand you're eating with. I'm like, oh, okay, I get that now. And then she she go like visibly holding the spoon goes on to the other side says see it's the same hand and I'm like and I understand that it's the same hand but in my mind it just could not comprehend I'm like oh and I switched hands again right it's just it did not make sense now my brain just wasn't developed right visually spatially to be able to comprehend that what makes us think that we, right now, in our fully developed, whatever, you know, they say brain stops developing at 25. What makes us think that our brain is so fully and infinitely developed that we can comprehend all things that there is to comprehend in this world? Like, that's a, that takes a lot of pride, doesn't it? To think that we can fit it all into a nice little box and explain everything away. We might never get clear and perfect boxed little answers here on earth on, in certain subjects. We should seek, but we should also seek with a dose of humility. And I promise you, when we get to heaven all together, we'll come to Jesus and we'll ask him to explain it to us. And I'm sure he will explain it to us. Now, going on, last part of this message points on the significance of bread, and these are, we're going to go through this much faster. First of all, I want to ask this question, what does it mean to feed on Christ? That John 6 talks about feeding on Christ, eat my flesh, drink my blood. Is it just talking about participating in communion? I don't think so. John 6 54, Jesus says, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. Okay, feeds on flesh, drinks the blood, has eternal life. John 5, 24, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. So hearing and believing is the same thing as feeding and drinking. John 8, 51, truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. So hearing, believing, keeping the words of Jesus means feeding on Christ. That's what it means to partake in Christ. And that's why it says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every what? Every word that comes from the mouth of God, right? That's what it means to feed on Christ spiritually. John 8, 37, Jesus tells the unbelievers, he says, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you, right? You're not partaking in me. My word, it's not inside of you. You're not hearing me. You're not believing me. You're not keeping my words, and that's why you're trying to kill me. Today we are participating in communion. John 6:54 again Jesus says whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. What a promise. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true 
drink. We've talked about this before. John is the only gospel that doesn't have the classic Lord's Supper passages of where Jesus kind of institutes it, right? Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all of them have it. John doesn't. But John talks about communion through the miracles of Jesus, through the wine at the wedding in John 2, like we talked about. The jars for purification were purified by the blood of Jesus. And now, by him being the bread of life, as he feeds the 5,000 with bread. So, as we're going to talk about the significance of bread, I want us to just be thinking and remembering our Lord, remembering him, remembering his death before we participate in communion. So let's talk about the significance of bread. It's very interesting. Jesus chooses these very basic images to reveal some truth about him but there's so much truth found in these basic symbols first of all with bread we have to take it all in right whatever you don't eat of bread we understand nutritionally it doesn't benefit you right you could walk around with a piece of bread you could sleep with the piece of bread you could use it as a pill you could do all these things but until it goes inside of you it doesn't benefit you. It doesn't actually help you. You, you could starve to death next to a, a you know, loaf of bread if you don't eat it. And I think it's really deep because a lot of people, they live next to bread their whole life. They carry it around with them, but they die of starvation because they don't carry. You know what that is? It's people that go to church their whole life, but they don't actually hear. They don't actually believe in their hearts. They don't actually keep the words of Jesus. And so it is people who die from starvation with bread in their hands. The next thing, the next significance of bread is it gives us strength. Right? One of the first things most people do before they start their day is they eat breakfast to have strength. Food gives us physical strength. Christ gives us physical and spiritual strength. Philippians 4.13, Paul writes, I can do all things through him who what? Strengthens me, right? Him who strengthens me. Church, this is a very practical application that was convicting for me. Whatever hardship you're going through, I want you to think about it right now. Just what, what is your challenge? What is the, that difficulty that you are going through? Are you actively coming to Jesus for strength in your weakness? Are you running to him? Lord, strengthen me. I feel very weak right now. I feel very tired. Help me. Yeah, I know. Sometimes we just need good sleep and do that. Get good sleep. But there's times we can't get good sleep. We have to go. We have to get up. Sometimes after long, good sleep, we still wake up and we're still tired, right? Are you coming to Christ? That was convicting for me. Am I actually, not theoretically, like, yeah, Christ strengthens me, but actually coming to him saying, Lord, I'm really tired. I don't think I could do this. Help me. Please help me. You are the bread of life. You give strength. Give strength to my weary soul, Lord. Third, we need bread to grow physically. We need Christ to grow spiritually. First Peter 2.2 2 says, 
Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it, by this milk, you may grow up into salvation. In the context of First Peter, what is that pure spiritual milk, church? What is the pure spiritual milk? Anyone want to guess? The word of God. The words of Christ. When we long for it, when we take it in, when we hear, when we believe, when we keep the words of Christ, we grow spiritually like newborn infants. For it gives life. We've talked about this briefly. John 6.33, for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Bread, it nourishes us. Jesus nourishes us in this life. More importantly, also in the life to come. Bread is what sustains us. You know, the only group of people in this world that don't eat anything, who is it? Which group of people don't eat? Dead people. Dead people. If you're not eating, are you alive? Ask yourself. Only dead people don't have an appetite. Only dead people don't eat anything at all. You could put food in a dead person's mouth, but they're not going to eat it, right? We need it to give us life. Five, bread satisfies us. Food satisfies us, right? John 6, 32. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life, and he who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. What a promise. We've already talked about this in the, the Samaritan, the woman at the well, right? And Jesus talks about never thirsting. But did you ever think about this, church, that God has designed food to taste good, to be pleasant? He didn't have to make the world that way, Right? He could have created a world where food was disgusting, where we didn't like it, but we ate it because we needed to, much like exercise, right? We don't actually enjoy exercise, but we do it because we know we need to and it's good for us. Food could have been the same exact way, but God in his grace made food very pleasant, too pleasant, right, Some, sometimes, and, but it's a symbol of who Christ is is, right? He made it enjoyable. He made it pleasant. Not only does Jesus strengthen us, not only does he give us eternal life, but he also satisfies us. He satisfies our souls. There's a shirt I've seen, uh, you know, someone was wearing, it says, I'm sorry for the things I said when I was hungry, right? We, we, we can all relate to this, right? When you come home hungry or hangry, that's the, the real term, right? But Christ Christ satisfies the hunger of our souls. When a person's hangry, they can go off on you for any little thing. Why are you looking at me like that, right? Why'd you say it in that tone or whatever? Like, it's like, whoa, slow down. What's going on? Sorry, I'm just hungry. My blood sugar is just low, right? They get triggered easily. They're not pleasant to be around. They, they I say they, we, right? We, I get hangry. But when we get fed, all of a sudden, we're happy, 
We're patient. We're kind. We're optimistic. You know, there's hope in this world, right? And all it took was some bread. Same thing happens when a person becomes a Christian. When a person takes in Christ, Christ changes the person completely from the inside out. It's like a hangry person that finally gets a meal. I remember our first daughter, Tanchka, you know, she, you know, she'd be like fussy and cranky. We're like, what's wrong? What's wrong? Well, she was just hungry, right? And as soon as she gets just a few drops of her mama's milk, giggling, smiling, laughing, right? And just so happy, right? Just the change was literally instant, right? Even before she, she got the milk, right? She was already happy because she knew she was about to get some. Christ is the bread that satisfies us. He changes us and our character from the inside out. Again, if you haven't met Christ, friend, if you, you haven't yet surrendered your life to him, if you haven't believed in him yet, do so today. Come, believe in him, repent, turn from your sins, trust. Come pray with us. We'll stop the service. We'll rejoice with you. That's the most important thing that could ever happen is you receiving the bread of life. There's nothing better. That's why Psalm 34 verse 8 says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Taste is a very, it's a very experiential, sens sensory, right, way of perceiving the world. It's not just seeing, it's tasting. It's this intimate knowledge of that thing. Point number six, bread, when we eat it, it goes into the center of us, and it becomes a part of who we are. You know, you always hear people saying this phrase, you are what you eat, you are what you eat. In a sense, it's true, Right? After you eat and digest that bread or that food or sushi or whatever it is, and it gets absorbed and your body, your blood carries the nutrients to all the different cells in your body, the molecules of that bread, you can no longer distinguish what is your body and what is the bread you ate. You now become one you are combined together. And that is the image that Jesus gives us. You are in Christ. Christ is in you, right? John 6, 56, in this same chapter, it says, Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides. Abide means remains or lives or dwells. Abides in me and I in him, right? Just like the bread that we eat. Now the bread abides in me and I abide in the bread because we're one. We're combined now. When we are in Christ, when we feed on him, he will be in us. And we have this beautiful and inseparable union with him from here on out. So as I call the band up, the last significance of bread is that we need to eat it every day. We need to eat it every day. John 6:56 says whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. This word abide it carries with itself this sense of constancy, right? Like alwaysness. I don't know if that's a word. It's not just a one-time event. You know, whoever comes to me, that that's a that sounds like a one-time event. But the word abide has this 
like continualness to it, right? You can't just eat for a week. Like, hey, dude, you want to go out and grab lunch after church? Oh, no, I ate last week. Like, <laughs> what would be your reaction, right, if somebody said that? The manna that was in the desert, it spoiled every day. They had to go and get new manna fresh every day. They couldn't get like even two days worth of manna unless it was the Sabbath. They had to get it every single day. We need to have faith that God will sustain us in this desert instead of relying on our own selves. Church, I know that we we love security, right? We love safety. We love promises. We love guarantees, right? We love storing up the acorns for the future, right? But Jesus says, trust me. I am your guarantee. You're with me and you're good. Trust me. You don't need any other guarantee. I will sustain you through this desert we need it every day for our entire body, the bread. And so we need Christ, a constant supply, a constant nourishment of Christ every day. Every part of our body needs food. Every part of our soul needs Jesus Christ. Not a single cell is able to survive without the nutrients that we eat. As Christians, we need Christ every day, church. We need them before we start our day. We need them throughout our day. We need them as we finish our day. Accepting Christ is not a one-time and done event. In a sense, it is, but in a sense, it isn't. We need Christ more often than we eat and snack physically. We do. Here's a challenge. Read Bible as often as you put food in your mouth. You eat a meal, read, read a chapter. You put a little chip or snack in there, read a verse of the day, right? Just snack on God's word. Hear, believe, keep the words of Christ. Think about it. Meditate on it. Let's stand. Let's pray. Right now we're going to have a minute of just silent response time. But I want to ask you, have you tasted the goodness and the sweetness of Jesus are you feeding on Christ? Is he sustaining you? Does his word live inside of you? Let's pray. Jesus, I need you. We need you. Strengthen us. Give us life. Satisfy the hunger of our souls. Let us not run to the things of this world that try to feed us this false bread, but let us come to you, Jesus. I pray, help us, sustain us in this wilderness until we come before you in your presence. And anyone who hasn't come to know you yet, Lord, I pray they would. I pray that they would taste and see that you are actually good, that you are better than anything that this world has to offer. Lord, we thank you. We pray this all in the precious name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.